everyone and welcome to the Fantasy Island edition of Romaniacs. It's Wednesday afternoon, the child ruins of amendments of the withdrawal bill are spiralling on the wind like leaves. Theresa May is going back to renegotiate a deal that the EU said was non-negotiable precisely seven minutes after she announced her plans. But be of good cheer, because even though the Cooper Amendment extending Article 50 fell, Caroline Spellman's amendment explicitly rejecting no deal passed. What does it all mean? We will be trying to work that out later in the show. I'm Ross Taylor and I've got two of our regulars here with me. Returning to Romaniacs after too long a break, it's Nina Schick, journalist, broadcaster, expert in disinformation and technology, and a German-born British resident who, like Joni Mitchell, has looked at Brexit from both sides now. (laughs) Hello, Nina. Welcome back. Hi. The last time you were here was at the end of November. Since then, we've had one aborted meaningful vote, one historic defeat for the government, mm-hmm. a plan B that's really plan A in a hat. Now this, did it make any more sense for a distance that it doesn't think of it? Uh, absolutely not. Um, in fact, I don't think we've moved one step forward at all since where we were from before December, before any of this happened. And the only step that we've taken forward is actually a step towards no deal Brexit. So, so it's di- looking good. From the direction far away. now is towards definitely towards new, no deal Brexit for you. I, I don't know if it is my base case scenario, but I think given what happened yesterday, it's certainly more likely. And I think it's more likely than what business and markets have factored in. I mean, I think they still think the deal will get across the line. But if the choice ultimately is some kind of reopening of the withdrawal agreement to remove the backstop via a no deal Brexit, it's going to be a no deal Brexit, even if that means a return to a hard border in Ireland, which I think will happen. I'm inclined to agree with you, unfortunately. And uh, in fact, I was tweeting today about what my top six stockpiling items would be, which was possibly irresponsible. But uh, anyway, anyway. What came number one? Uh, tin tomatoes. Oh, really? Oh, that's the thing you can't do without. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, it's not that I can't do without. It. Well, it is that I can't do without. It. It's, it's, that it's the most practical thing that, that um, is non-perishable and nutritious. And obviously, you know, if fresh food is in short supply, you're going to be after... Uh, something that is pretending to be fresh so that was my logic also yeah, grated logic. grated mm. cheese in the freezer can I just mm. say my guilt mm. and my guilt at this point is already elevated slightly <laughs> <laughs> we'll come to that <laughs> <laughs> we'll come to that that's Oliver Norgrove who uh, I'll be introducing later uh, also with us is Ian Dunt editor of politics.co.uk and as this crisis gets worse no longer a Romaniac but a Remain insomniac <laughs> hello Ian how are you getting any more sleep Oh, yeah, I sleep like a baby. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do, because you're exhausted. Indeed, <laughs> I have the, 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 like, sort of the shimmers of morality going through me as we fight this stuff. Do you get the sense that we're heading somewhere now, even if it's somewhere bad? Yeah, to, to oblivion. We're heading to oblivion. This, to, this week was the worst. For me, this week was probably the worst I think I've had. Hmm. Yeah, probably for the whole process, because everything, because so much of my, you know how you always like that human bit of you as as everything goes badly wrong on one time, badly wrong again, and you just need hope somewhere, right? So you always find this like, okay, is there any avenue where there could be hope? And to me, it was constantly, and has been for the last year, has been Parliament, Hmm. showing these growing signs of being prepared to take things on. So quite apart from the actual propositions yesterday, the actual stuff that Cooper was putting forward or Grieve or anything, the sight of Parliament just just not having the spine that when the moment because if you're like well if not now then when mate when's it going to be you know it's not like you've got all the time in the world and them not doing it spooked me quite badly that had been my hope place for about 12 months now and then I could feel it sort of chiseling away so not the best week no wonder you were drinking 
right? <laughs> <laughs> I would have been drinking either way, to be fair. But uh, yes, they gave me a good excuse. <laughs> One of the saddest and most dismal events last week was the sight of the European Medicines Agency saying goodbye to their London office and lowering the EU28 flags. Uh, that was pretty upsetting, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. And, you know, I mean, we can go over what it, like what the waste is when you've... When you've they, they were setting up a single European patent a while back. And David, one of the things that David Cameron did very, very sensibly was to try and make sure that the court that was handling pharmaceuticals was in the UK. And part of the reason for that was because the presence of the EMA... The presence of industry here had meant that we were growing into one of the hubs, one of the central hubs for the pharmaceutical industry. You know, it barely makes a nib in most newspapers, the fact that that place went. But as you look at it go, it's not just the obvious sight, the symbol of the flags coming down and going off, which for any sort of remainder is like, oh, Christ almighty, this shit's really going down. It's also on a, on a purely on a level of what are you in the world? What is your status in the world? That is diminishment, and it is happening right in front of your face. Joining us for the first time today is Melissa Chamau, a BBC World Service radio producer and writer who's covered the EU migration crisis, among many other stories. She was born in Paris and has been based in Prague, Miami, London, Nairobi and Bristol. And as well as obsessing over Brexit, she's got a music book, Massive Attack, Out of the Comfort Zone, coming out in March. Hello, Melissa, and welcome to Romaniacs. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> the refugee crisis was at the centre of Brexit. Now it only seems to resurface when Sajid Javid needs a new story. Is it still correct to talk of a refugee crisis? Well, no, it's completely appalling. It was never correct to talk about a crisis because, you know, they are in Lebanon, a quarter of the population are refugees from Palestine and other neighbouring countries. Mm. In, in Africa, people are moving. I mean, I used to be based in Nairobi, you mentioned it. There's one of the biggest refugee camps in the world in the north, in Dadaab, near the border with Somalia. So the people who reached France, I've been to Calais, I've been to Ventimiglia, the border with Italy, I've been to Sicily, I've been to Bristol, London, where a lot of people are actually so ashamed that they came to Calais to help. There's more English volunteers in Calais than French or Belgians once. Mm. So it's not a crisis at all. It's completely used by the tabloids, by the, the political bodies, by the British MPs. And we've seen how fabricated it was all to scare people. I mean, I think there's like maybe two to 3,000 Syrian refugees in the UK at the moment. So compared to Germany, who had, I think, where there's been a million people arriving from 2015, and it's compared to what Europe had seen in the past history, compared to what's happening in South America, in Uganda, very the poorest country in the world are hosting the biggest number of refugees. Nepal, again, Kenya, Uganda, Cameroon, Chad... Do I really need to go on? <laughs> no, you, don't, you don't. But I mean, would, would migration have the same salience as an issue if we had another vote, do you think? Because I mean, Turkey is moving away from Europe increasingly now, and it looks even less likely than it did before that it will join. So would, we, would it matter? Would they be able to play that card again? Well, I think no. And Turkey is an interesting case. Actually, the first time I've stayed in Bristol to write my book, then the next week I was traveling to Istanbul in uh, 2015. So Turkey has changed completely. Like t 10 years before that, I was in Brussels visiting the European institution and we talked to the Turkish representation there mm. and they had a completely different government and they were so keen to get into the EU. But the 10 years on, uh, they've become like the, the kind of, ghost or chiffon rouge I would say in, in French like no everything but the Turks etc <laughs> etc et but in the meantime the, there's been so much 
xenophobia. And we've done so many stories about how the Europeans have been treated in the UK recently, including this poor woman in the overground, Spanish woman talking to her mother on the phone, like, you know, smashed by a, by a, a young British guy because she was just speaking in another language. I think it's jealousy or envy, you know, because most British people, they only speak English and we are all very <laughs> multilingual from the EU. But it's another it's another issue. So maybe it could play a different role because I've, when I've been to the March, for instance, in October for People's Vote, there were so many British people saying, you know what, my niece is dating a Romanian guy and I feel a bit sad and my son has been living in the Netherlands for the past years and he will have to come back. And I've met also a lot of people who have divorced because they have not been feeling any support from their in-laws. It's every time, lunch, Sunday rose, Christmas, you get mm. a joke about, so when are you going back to wherever, uh, Portugal, France, whatever you want to add. And those people are still going on holidays and crying over like, oh, maybe I'll have to pay for a visa to go to Greece next time. So there's such an imbalance that I hope that people would just see it the other way around completely. Or maybe maybe these Europeans are also human beings in the end. <laughs> no, now you're reaching. You're asking too much. That, that's the extremist proposition. <laughs> well, you know, I'm a very idealistic person. <laughs> <laughs> Melissa will be with us throughout the show. Our special guest this week is first for Maniacs. He's our first Lever guest, and he was even a former staff member at Vote Leave. <gasps> don't, don't worry, he's a sensible one, a soft Brexiter, and someone who since 2017 has been calling for Britain to stay in the single market. One of his choice of recent tweets reads, I cannot drive home the point hard enough that during the referendum, nobody on our campaign spoke seriously in favour of no deal. Anybody who said they voted for no deal on the 23rd of June is historically revisionist and a liar. It's Oliver Norgrove. Hello, Oliver, and welcome to the lion's den that is Romania. Good afternoon. <laughs> a very good afternoon to you all. Thank you for having me. Um, and I may I say that it is surprisingly comfortable being nailed to a waterboard. <laughs> <laughs> we, we set it all up. We put the cushions and everything. So. What's your takeaway from yesterday and all the votes? I wasn't particularly surprised um, with what happened yesterday. Um, it was a very bad day for Remain. Um, it was a very good day... I, did, I didn't celebrate particularly what yesterday, though, because it was also a very good day for no dealers, I thought. Um, my takeaway from yesterday was that we drove ever so slightly closer or perhaps significantly closer to either a no deal or the prospect of another referendum because the impasse isn't... The central impasse didn't go anywhere yesterday. Mm -hmm. So we, I think yesterday's Commons votes, which I, I mean, I tweeted beforehand, that I, I predicted that everyone would fail apart from Greaves. And I think I was... I think I was wrong, but I think I was almost almost correct. I think Spellman, she said, passed. Yeah. Um, but I think that basically what happened yesterday was we saw um, a Parliament push the end result or whatever happens at the end of this towards one extreme or another. So I wasn't, I didn't see that much reason to celebrate, but it was a very very bad day for you guys. For you guys. I th but you just said that the people's vote stuff you thought got more likely, which, by the way, I didn't think. I thought the other way round. I thought, if anything, the events of yesterday, the fact that so many Labour MPs voted against the Cooper Amendment, mm -hmm. would actually encourage Corbyn to never go towards yeah. people's vote. See, I thought yesterday, um, you might be right, actually, but I thought yesterday that yesterday highlighted the fact that um, we the impasse isn't going to move anywhere. Um, May's deal is not going to be significantly altered in Brussels. And that, to me... That to me implies that when she brings it back again, it still won't be acceptable. So, in other words, Parliament still won't find a way through, and it may it may be the case that the only way round that is to go back to the people. Oh well, I agree. But then in that case, it would be quite a good day for Remainers. Uh, if you win, 
<laughs> well, yeah, but yeah, okay, I'm fine. And I don't think you would. Ooh. We'll talk about your time inside Vote Leave later in the show, but did you ever imagine it would have played out like this? About three years ago, I was hopelessly naive in some respects, so I probably would say no if I, I thought it would be easier than it has turned out to be. Uh, I don't think it's going well, and I've not thought it, it's been going well for a long time now, and I've gotten very kind of jaded and tired. Um, I could criticise... I have some fair criticisms of Remainers, but I have quite a few of my own side as well. I think that what we've seen from my own side, particularly on the Tory right, has been a systemic, uh, targeted and a deliberate campaign of political lying. And I think it's been so, um, it, it's been intolerable um, for me to stomach. It's been intolerable for, I can't imagine what it's like for you lot to stomach. Um, and so I, I, didn't, I didn't anticipate the extent to which um, lying and misinformation would become so central and so normal to my own side. And that's something that I'm not, I haven't been happy with. As I think I think there is a case for Brexit, a democratic case, which is quite sound. Well, it is, I think it is sound. Um, I don't see Brexit as being um, an economic pursuit because it, I, don't, I think that the evidence would suggest that it's not. Um, and but my side, unfortunately, has tried to go full pelt and try to present this as like a, 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 a you know, presenting us with some kind of economic paradise. Um, and that's where a lot of the lying is coming, especially around things like WTO rules and what a no-deal scenario would look like. Uh, I tried. I tried my best to kind of reel back on that and say, no, let's be sensible. Um, these, this is how this is how this is how trade works to the extent that I understand it. Um, but I, I haven't. I haven't been impressed with the Tory right, it's, which I would say makes up most of the noise on my side of the argument. Yeah, Arguably, true. it's because you know it's so complicated. And you can't put across a political message like that when it's uh, and, and make it appealing when mm. it's so incredibly complex. And that's I think a, the broad- downfall, wasn't it? Oh, that's correct. And I think the broadcast media as well have some um, some small amount of blame to take because, as, as last week's fiasco with James Dellingpole showed, um, <laughs> you know where I'm going with this. Uh, the I, I wasn't happy with him, um, and the fact that it's so complicated means it's very important to get guests on who can actually articulate these these issues at least some way accurately and not people who literally literally know nothing at first and then two days later go away they start from the point of an opinion and then bend the facts and research around to meet the opinion and that is so contrary to any kind of intellectual growth or uh <laughs> in, in informing others it's, it's it's unbelievable it really is What's the most annoying thing that Remainers do? I have a, you have a really um, horrible habit of attacking and undermining your own plan B. So mm-hmm. your least worst option, you've always attacked as well. And mm-hmm. it's like you might, a- you might, actually, you might actually rely on that one day, mm-hmm. like the Norway option during the referendum and the lies that were told about that, um, which were uh, quite frustrating. Um, pay no say and things like that, which are very, very nuanced and, and caveated heavily. Um, I will also say that um, I don't, I think that you guys put too much emphasis on the economics of this of this thing, which is fair because that's people are interested in it. But I think it's not as impactful as as the whole Project Fear counter campaign showed. Mm-hmm. I think it's not as impactful as you would perhaps like it to be. And sometimes I think that uh, my friend, fellow former soft lever Roland Smith, tweeted about six months ago that the different the primary difference between levers and remainers is that leavers are good at politics and bad at policy and remainers are good at policy and bad at politics. <laughs> and that's a very simplified version of it, but it, I, think, I think there's actually truth in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Later in the show, we'll be sifting through the events of yesterday as well as looking at Britain's precarious food security, Marc-Francois versus Airbus and the small matter of Britain under martial law. 
But first, a reminder from Nina. If you can't get enough of Romaniacs, we are about to release our new, regular fifth episode of the podcast, exclusively to our Patreon backers. We can never fit in all your questions in on our semi-regular Ask Romaniacs feature, so we're spinning it off into its own monthly show. Like Better Call Saul, except in Theresa May's case, it's a bit more like Better Call Michelle Barnier, again. The new Oscar Maniacs podcast will cost us a little more to produce, so it's going to Patreon backers on the $5 a month tier and upwards. The first one goes out this weekend, so it's a good time to back us on Patreon if you haven't already. Just search Patreon Romaniacs or go out to our Facebook page to find out how to sign up. And if you're on the $2 tier, why not give yourselves our famous executive upgrade? You'll get the new Ask Romaniacs show, the coveted Romaniacs coffee mug, and all our other lovely benefits. That's a weekly column from one of the panel, discounts on Romaniacs live tickets, and of course, the regular podcast a whole day early. Search Patreon Romaniacs or go to our Facebook page to find out more. Okay, the amendments. We've had time for the dust to settle. Ian, you described yesterday's events as a masterclass in cowardice from MPs. What happened? Bad things. Um, So, okay, I'll tell you, the overall narrative is this, is that we're back in the world of myth-making. So, you know, I, I would say that, you know, referendum was won on the basis of myths. It was... Pursued by May for really up until last summer when she came up with checkers on the basis of myths as well. You can have everything you want. You can have all of the control, all of the trade, blah, blah, blah. You know, everyone gets their own unicorn, etc. And then it came crashing into reality with checkers. I had the backstop. Yeah. And as soon as that happened, the, co- the sort of Brexit coalition fractures. She gets, you know, absolutely humiliated. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, one week ago, I have no sense of time anymore. Whenever it was that she brought it to the Congress. Um, and then yesterday... They found a bit more fucking fairy tales. And the fairy tale in this case was the Brady Amendment, which says we're going to find alternative arrangements. And you think, well, the backstop is there if your alternative arrangements fail. So what you've now done is said that you're going to find alternative arrangements to your alternative arrangements. And that's your fucking answer. And then, like, the most extraordinary fucking idiocy that you see from the commentary, from the sort of comment, from commentators going, oh, well, now they found a positive solution <laughs> that she can go pursue. And it's like, she had to fucking. There's no meaning whatsoever in what was said yesterday. It was actively meaningless, purposefully meaningless. It's not like it's some kind of mistake. It's they know that only by extracting mm. the meaning from these propositions can they find anything resembling a majority. So all of the stuff that actually was real, that had a mechanism to it, like the Cooper Amendment, which you know would have allowed for an extension if MPs decided to back it, to back the bill, not even the amendment. It would have just given them the power to do it. All of the stuff that was real, that dealt with the situation that we're in, they killed. All of the stuff that created new fairy stories, they jumped behind and acted like they were actually doing something. And they were doing the precise opposite of that. They were just once again getting lost in fucking nonsense instead of dealing with the problem that was on their plate. So two amendments did pass. Um, can you explain the Spellman Amendment? Because it's non-binding, isn't it? Yeah, basically, like we would much rather there was, there was not no deal. That's what Spellman adds up to. All the stuff that was like, the, this is the mechanism by which we would prevent no deal, they killed. Okay, so the Cooper thing. Cooper was basically, she put in a private member's bill. Private member's bills usually die. But then she got this sort of super serum, like which was basically the amendment, and just injected it into the parliamentary timetable so that the bill grew massive muscles and would have just powered its way through in one day. They killed that. I mean, they could, and it wasn't even that fucking close. I mean, I was expecting it to be closer than it was. I was to be. I mean, part of my horror was just the fact that actually there was, there was quite a, quite a lot in it, yeah. to be honest. So all of that was killed, and instead you got Spellman's thing, which is just oh, we'd much rather there was no deal. So what MPs then did was 
by passing Spellman and not Cooper, what they've said is, we would like this, but we are unwilling to have the, just the fucking spine to actually do the thing that would actually get it. Yeah. Which, I mean, if, as far as pathetic, uh, like as far as just something to just, just shatter any confidence you have in these people, I'd say that's pretty far up there. Timing wasn't great either. The timing made it look even worse. The fact that Spellman came near the end, so the Parliament mm-hmm. had effectively been mm-hmm. saying, yeah, no deal, we don't, we don't really, we, we want no deal, we want no deal. Oh, no, actually, well, we don't want it very much. And it's just like, <laughs> it just like yeah, it didn't look very good. But having said that, the Brady Amendment, um, that's even more of a mindfuck, isn't it? Well, it's just, it's just complete and utter nonsense. Bullshit. <laughs> That's not what you say when you're on CNN. <laughs> it should be what you say when you're on CNN, though. No, it's it's utter rubbish. And, you know, you had the European Council, Donald Tusk, uh, president, president of the European Council, coming out pretty soon saying the withdrawal agreement will not be renegotiated. And then you had, uh, you know, the chairman of the Bundestag Foreign Affairs Committee coming out on Newsnight saying the withdrawal agreement will not be renegotiated. I mean, <laughs> to what extent is this so difficult to understand? This was an agreement that the UK, so Theresa May's own government, agreed and signed off with 28 other member states. Um, So the idea that now this will be reopened, the backstop will be removed, and there'll be a new deal is just fantasy. And I think what you'll see happening vis-a-vis the EU in the next two weeks is they're going to play hardball. They'll be like, okay, so if you want to take this down the line, let's do it. Um, They still haven't been convinced that Theresa May has anything in Parliament that can deliver a majority. So if it has to be a no deal, it will be a no deal. So all this stuff that Johnson has been spouting about how it takes two to tango and you know uh, they would say that wouldn't they uh, the EU always does 11th hour deals that's that's rubbish in your view there okay so of course there is room for some flexibility the EU has already clarified that they don't want the backstop to ever come into action either and that's actually in the withdrawal agreement you know mm. failing alternative arrangements failing this magic tech which hasn't realized failing a trade deal which means that there's no need for a border failing that as an insurance policy we have the backstop so <laughs> the idea, so that's already there so the, I don't know what they can do in order to clarify it more they can you know they're definitely not going to remove it from the withdrawal agreement if that's the red line that the conservatives have moreover the backstop is a british creation it is in the withdrawal agreement because that is essentially what the british government asked for they said you know given that Theresa May's speech uh, in Lancaster House, her red lines on Brexit was, we're leaving the customs market, we're leaving the single uh, market, but we cannot have a border. So then the EU said, fine, well, then we'll have to have in the Irish seat. That was unacceptable. So they had a UK-wide customs union as the you know final outcome for the backstop, which is something, again, that the UK asked for. So as far as the EU is concerned, they're like, well, this is your solution. So we're not, we're not going to renegotiate mm-hmm. it. We have tangoed Boris. And you agreed to it a year ago when you signed up to it. You didn't say anything then when you're foreign secretary. It's such a weird thing for him to say because he was he's on CNN right uh, on CNN. <laughs> this is the trouble with uh, He's on Sky and they pass the thing and the EU have just put this message to you going, we're not going to reopen the withdrawal agreement. He goes, well, you know, it takes two to tango. And you're like, no, fucking exactly. That's exactly the <laughs> yeah, problem yeah. right there. You've just yeah. negated your own argument. Yeah. So how did Labour play its hand this week? Uh, anyone got any thoughts on Labour? <laughs> <laughs> can, really can anybody articulate Labour's position on anything? Uh, yeah, well, possibly yeah, something. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe. It's usually disappointing from a lot of uh, 
voters, Labour voters I've talked to, I mean, a few people have expressed how tired they are and they just want to get over this and have a nice, magical Brexit suddenly. Just hmm. No one knows how to deliver this. But Labour has had... They, they have nothing on the table. Even when they were doing... They, they were making their headlines, it was just absolute void. We will find a way. It's just... I don't know. I, w I used to be quite an admirer of their leader because he was such a grassroots campaigner. But it's been two years of silence and nothing and, and stubbornness and it's just really difficult to grasp. For me, Jeremy Corbyn is just as bad as some of the worst liars on the Conservative side. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, I found his whole today, his say, you know, finally saying, I will go and talk to Theresa May really, really cynical because that's obviously after Theresa May has swung behind the ERG and the DUP and gone for the hardest kind of no deal Brexit or on, on, on the backstop. So now he wants to negotiate with her. So I wouldn't you think he's be... Got, you think he's too I, late? Well, I, it's very cynical, right? So I, I almost see this as his stand in what he can later claim was a principled, you know, opposition to the Conservative Party's decision. But perhaps a potential way for Theresa May's deal to get through is that, you know, Corbyn basically says we take a principled stand, we're against this. And he says that he's not going to vote on it and allow some of the Labour MPs to who are, you know, facing the barrel of no deal Brexit to vote for Theresa May's deal. So, I mean, I th he's he's been abominable on Brexit and he <laughs> constantly lies on it. I think his position is still that he would have an extension if he could have a new negotiation. So mm -hmm. as much as we reserve our ire for the liars on the conservative side, I think Corbyn needs to be pinned to the wall as well. He does. He does. And look, and, and it was obviously absurd nonsense for them to be saying, well, look, it's just three. We just need a three month extension mm -hmm. and then we can negotiate a customs union that we will also have voting rights on and we'll have this whole new kind of single market relationship that they refuse to specify. And which actually I have to say, journalists need to take some blame because these guys go on to fucking TV studios. They say this say single market and you're like, what does it mean? Okay, yeah. if you're saying you're not going to have freedom movement, then what are the consequences that follow from that? Exactly how close can it be? They're not pinned down on it because journalists frankly don't ask. Mm. And then a, a bunch of the, the other blather. I have to say, though, there is a sort of uh, there, there was something there was that was quite chastening, I think, about last night was basically all they so they got Cooper. They basically got Cooper into a position where she was basically saying it's for three months. And really, I guess from Cooper's perspective, what she was thinking was if we can just show the principle that it can be extended, mm -hmm. then we'll have the next. Everyone knows three months is not enough. So we'll have the next debate after that. Next two years. Well, yeah, yeah. If, if the EU would allow, which they probably That's wouldn't. But whatever. <laughs> but putting that to one <laughs> side, how? even on that very, very modest principle, Corbyn could not take all of the Labour backbenchers with him. And that gives some indication of how much of a challenge you would have, even if the Labour leadership said that it was signing up to a people's vote. Just how many more would you lose? You'd certainly be losing more than we saw then than just a dozen. I think you'd, you'd, probably, you'd be losing up maybe between sort of 50 to 100 Labour MPs, probably mm. more like 50, let's say. So you, there's a lot of work that has to be done to get enough moderate Tories to come over. So Corbyn is useless. The Labour front bench, apart from Starmer, is, is pretty abysmal. But also, when you look at the back benches, you think that, that even if he was much better, this would still be a very severe problem for I the opposition party. One yeah. of the things that makes it worse as well is that when you listen to Corbyn talk, especially at the dispatch box, he doesn't give you the impression that he actually understands the issues he's talking about. Mm. So yeah. when he talks about the customs union especially, he talks about the customs union ensuring free and frictionless trade. And I've, um, I've written before, and you've written before quite a lot, that um, you, in order to guarantee frictionless trade between uh, the UK and the EU, you need three things. You need the EEA or single market. You need 
a comprehensive customs union and you need some agreement on the VAT area or perhaps continued alignment to it. Uh, and Jeremy Corbyn seems to think, and I think I think he overstates, the, without realising it, I think he overstates the case and the actual competence of what a customs union actually achieves because it doesn't achieve very much. Uh, it just so happens to be in the case in this scenario that it, it, that we we need one for the sake of maintaining a frictionless Irish border, which is a, a a problem and it's something that we just have to face because it's reality. But the fact that Corbyn doesn't seem to grasp the actual trading arrangements that he wants his party to opt for doesn't give anyone any confidence, in my mm. opinion. Partly, what's so what's so dispiriting is to see customs union on its own become the only alternative to May's plan. No one's even fucking talking about the single yeah. market. And the truth <laughs> yeah. is. Customs union with a single market is fucking amazing. It opens up a bunch of shit. Mm. Customs union on its own with nothing single market Drop to go with ocean. it. It's it's fuck all, man. We're talking yeah. about fuck all, uh. and even that is too much for her to reach across the aisle for. Yeah. So the many billion pounds a year question: What is going to happen next? <laughs> <laughs> what is going to happen next? Because I don't know, <laughs> Melissa. Tell me what's going to happen next. What's going to happen next? It can be completely delusional, and obviously I've not lived here forever, as, as you know. But I do believe it's completely insane. So the only way is just to go backwards and have no Brexit at all. I mean, it's supposed to happen in two months. There's no, no decision that the political parties are more divided than ever. And just to add on what we were saying before, I, took, I interviewed a lot of Corbyn supporters. And what what do they want, they say? They want the Labour Party to come back in power and to implement the perfect British society where everything is renationalized in three minutes and all the workers get employed and it's like la-la land for the UK with no Spanish waiter in London or something like that, basically. But you can keep your house in Normandy or La Rochelle. So it's like everyone is just hiding in a bush, I think. There, I mean, there needs to be some honesty. Everybody failed. This is not possible. You've heard what the French president said before, and it is not my favorite politician at all. It's not because we share the same passport that I'm quoting him, but he did say that Brexit can't happen. It's not. It can't be delivered. There's no rule. No one knows what it means. And the only good thing in this is that all the other countries who had the vague idea of doing this on their own blah blah might be discouraged for a thousand years <laughs> and then on the British side as the thing the first question I asked when I went to so the first thing I wanted to do after the referendum is to go to Scotland for a story for my, the German radio I work for uh, and I met with Scottish people obviously but also English people living there and I asked everyone so why when you voted for Brexit didn't you have in mind the future of the nation itself there, I think there's four nations in the UK if I'm not wrong we all know it's complicated <laughs> and uh, we it, how could you not have in mind that the Northern Irish problem is unsolvable it's a tiny piece of land doesn't make any money everything's financed by the EU this complicated border like have you looked at the border between Iraq and Iran straight line have you looked at the border between Northern Ireland and Ireland I think even themselves don't know right now you know people tell you oh yeah I think over there they have the matrix system that's how they know they're not in the UK anymore and Scotland just to finish what, what, what do we do with that I mean I was there just up until yesterday People want to stay in the EU much more than they want to stay in the UK. So all this history, you've seen the poster in the tube, Mary, Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth, all this history of Scotland and England trying to finally mount into being the same nation. And suddenly in five minutes, people just voted once for like 
just to say no to David Cameron, basically. And now we still we don't know what's the future for this. So my word is very simple. Apologize. Say it didn't work. We tried. And until we have a plan, maybe we should not Brexit. Right, so revoke Article 50, make Donald Tusk a happy man. Oh, don't forget Wales, by the way. What's actually quite amazing is in conversation, this comes up more and more and more people, just lots of people who are not really pro people's vote, who are just going like, just fucking stop it now. Lawyers lawyers are especially keen on it. If it works completely wrong again, then I don't have such an optimistic outlook because something would have to happen for Article 50 to be revoked, right? And we all know, like, no one's doing like, anything. So. Like the boulder rolling down the hill, the default option is no deal Brexit. You can say you don't want no deal Brexit as much as you want in Parliament, but unless you're willing to take action to stop that, we're heading for a no deal Brexit. I think Theresa May is going to go to the EU. Uh, all the EU leaders are going to say, no, Theresa May, there will be no special UCO to renegotiate the deal. We've already signed off on it. Then she comes back. And we've moved closer to no deal Brexit. So then she very tactically has, well, not tactically, but she has then even more starkly to present to the parliament, look, it's my deal or no deal. And she'll be hoping that those who didn't vote for her deal the first time around will this time vote for it, faced by the barrel of no deal. And if that doesn't get through, I think it will be a no deal Brexit. Right, no deal Brexit. Oliver, what's your prediction? Uh, My prediction is... um Unfortunately, I'm going to have to say I think there's going to be a no-deal Brexit. I agree with Nina, uh, and I'm not God, not not especially happy too. about it. I've never been in favour of one. Uh, I would I would say I would rather vote Remain than no deal for, for a no deal. I would rather Remain than than vote for a no deal. Um, I think that the consequences of a no deal broadly align into two categories. You have the immediate economic consequences, the stockpiling and so on, the friction at the borders, the crushing of just-in-time supply chains, and you have the second branch of consequences, which I don't think anybody really talked about, and I don't necessarily, I can't necessarily paint a really accurate picture of them, but I think that there there are more long-term geopolitical consequences of a no deal, and I think that (laughs) future administrations as a result of a no deal may be weaker, so we may end up coming back to the EU and getting yeah. Less in return for our begging, if that makes any sense. Yeah, so um, things we never talk about, like peace, yeah. you know, de- defense agreement. Mm. On which side are we? China, Washington, yeah. Brussels. I think there's a geopolitical element as well. It's not just about food and trading goods. Um, I think one. I have the hope in my mind that Article 50 will be extended because I want to leave with a deal, and I don't mm. want to leave without a deal. Yeah. Ian, very briefly, what's your prediction? Look, I think it, that stuff is all perfectly realistic. The, let's point a, a slightly more optimistic picture, which I don't know if it's more likely or less likely, but th- this is where the chance is if there's, if there's hope. It is that, look, we know the time frame. We know she's either going to go and come back with something that is amendable before Valentine's Day. She had to fucking set it on Valentine's Day. Because, um, <laughs> all headline writers across the country are tremendous service. So to credit to her for that. So it's either before Valentine's Day or on Valentine's Day she comes. So that could be one or two votes. Now, in that time, we know who needs to be convinced. We know the Labour Brexiters need to be threatened or cajoled or bribed to get on board. We know the Tory moderates are not showing up to the degree that they should. And we know that the moderates around the cabinet table, of which there are ostensibly supposed to be, you know, well over a dozen, need to be told this is the last fucking chance you do this now there are no further chances on that basis extension is winnable but Mm. those are the people that need to be targeted and they need to be targeted hard 
Meanwhile, away from the Commons, there were two minor no-deal developments this week. Nothing to worry about, just the British Retail Consortium warning that no-deal will lead to higher prices and empty supermarket shelves in a letter signed by Sainsbury's, Asda, McDonald's and other major food retailers. And the Sunday Times reported that plans are in place for martial law, uh, including four hours to impose curfews and travel bans, confiscate property and deploy the army in the event of no-deal. It would be shit to have martial law and also no food. so like if, if, if yeah. I had food, I'd just stay at home. I'd be like, oh, fine, we'll eat. You know what I mean? Like, I'll eat and watch Teddy. But I saw a brilliant Vox Pop with hot take on the street was like, it would do this country good to have no food for a oh, while. Oh, they fucking love <laughs> yeah. it. They love it. Yeah, they love it. And it's always like, they're, they're like 50 or 60. They're never like people who would have actually fought in the war, but they grew up hearing about it enough that they're like, I need to pretend that I actually yeah. had a leading role in the and Normandy they, landing. They so, even <laughs> missed rationing because rationing went on for ages. My mum telling me, you know, 1950s would be a beyond mm. and they miss that too it's really it's really telling isn't it <laughs> right firstly on the food foot shortages this was of course immediately rubbished as project fear but setting aside whether there's anything new in it personally i can't wait to watch jacob Rees-Mogg cracking open a tin of whiskers <laughs> um, but where is this self-scourging impulse coming from Does i think it... he'd go for pedigree chart well of course he would but i'm hoping you'd have to have whiskers <laughs> <laughs> why do we why what is the appeal of suffering to this generation <laughs> do, do they feel that young people are the ones who are enjoying all the exotic food and it's time they stopped it or, or what is mm. it I, I don't get it at all it's like the thing you always get with like older voters who think you should bring conscription back because it would sort things out and it's like well you didn't fucking have conscription yourself it's not like you came from a generation that I, I kind of get it everyone thinks that whatever was the case in their childhood is the right thing to be happening in the future I understand that but it wasn't even like that in their childhood it wasn't like so on what basis apart from just meanness and spite and jealousy could they just possibly hate the youth so much either that or the avocados have fucking pissed those guys off <laughs> they're just not going to take that shit anymore avocados aren't particularly nice though. that so. is bullshit oh, that no, is no, just no, that no, is no, simple. No, I, I will take I, leave I, but I, I won't take the avocado I, I eat a ketogenic diet and fats are great but I'm not a fan of avocados <laughs> I don't know what the word was what was the word you just said I, 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 I eat a ketogenic diet what, so what I don't is... it means I don't eat carbs and I get my energy from fats And that sounds shit it's great I mean, it makes me feel good. Carbs make me feel like shit. Carbs are the best thing in the world. Oh, they taste. I mean, there are carb cravings I do get sometimes. Yeah. Why do you? Why do you? That's why. That's why I didn't have milk in my tea. January detox, uh, forced by martial law. And uh, (laughs) our advice for next week: Is it a good time to bring in? Don't be jealous that I'm just going to Paris next week and I can get all the cheese and wine I want for a very wonderful price and product from Italy. If you're good, I can promise to bring you something. Just don't don't call me illegal merchant or whatever. I'm already illegal, a lot of things. Well, I mean, speaking of that, Nina and Melissa, you're German and French. What do your friends and family make of the, this British obsession with the war? Because even we're getting sick of it now. Yeah, I mean, they they are bemused and they do see you know brexit as a huge you know kick in the head by shooting yourself in the foot but i have to say that for all the kind of accusations of teutonic arrogance or 
the EU is like Hitler. I saw something the other day which said Napoleon was <laughs> tried to invade yeah. the UK. That was the EU. I mean, this obsession. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> he invented the idea. Yeah, yeah, he invented the idea. So, like, it's Brexit Hitler, Napoleon, and Jean Claude Juncker, and, you know, Donald Tusk, who is actually a freedom fighter behind the Iron Curtain and, you know, <laughs> really put his own life at risk for by fighting for freedom and democracy, you know, when he's accused of being some kind of... Um, I love Donald. Uh, yeah, he's an amazing guy. You'll see the other this, Donald. This is exactly what I would have thought this kind of podcast yeah. would be like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, si- I'm, si- I'm sitting here like all my suspicions have been confirmed. <laughs> No, so but I, I love mean, Donald. I'm walking out. Sorry. Yeah. The other I, I, Donald. I, I actually like Barney. I'm not a big fan of Junker, but I like the other. No, Junker's not very good. I like Barney though. But the point I was going to make is that for all the kind of li- ridiculous, hysterical Second World War kind of comparisons you see on the British side, actually look at what the opinion papers and what the politicians are saying on the European side. They have been very diplomatic. You know, when they're accused of being like Hitler, they're like, okay, well, that isn't a very nice thing to say. <laughs> but, <they're, laughs> but you know, we kind of started this project for peace and prosperity, but fine, you know, you're, you're free to stay, you're free to go, but, you know, we're not going to bend our rules just to accommodate your ridiculous um, delusions. So I think it, most, most of all in the EU, they're quite sad. They do see an obsession with the Second World War, but... They aren't reveling in the demise of what they see as a very sensible, usually, and pragmatic partner, which they were glad to have in the union. Mm. They're saddened by it. Melissa, the French see civil disobedience as their civic duty almost. Can you see Brexit Britain dissolving into circumstances that need emergency powers? Well, obviously, from France, this situation is completely difficult to understand because, I mean, you know, we demonstrating is not a civic duty. It's like a weekly hobby, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it turned into the gilet jaune recently, and then there's the red scarves as well. I mean, you know, we do that all the time. So mm. I, as a French person, I've been living here for a long time, and I think I know British politics even more than French politics, but I don't understand general passivity it's just absolutely. I mean, even when I went to the march, it was it was lovely because everyone was so heartwarming and gentle. But I mean, I don't think it's the most efficient way in doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. Because also, you know what? I'm I'm a European, not because I was born in Paris only, just because I've lived in so many European countries, and it's fantastic to have freedom of movement. But it's just the hardest part is for British people in there it's not for us we'll still be 27 I mean I might have to move to Portugal or Belgium for a while with the new BBC headquarter but I will survive I guess Uh, it's just like people here especially the people who voted to Brexit to leave in like Northern England and Cornwall, that was my favourite, Cornwall, everything is subsidised by the EU. They didn't even know, so I guess now people have learned. So how? What, what's the response for them? They, they should be calling up. Last time I've interviewed even some leavers, they were like, no one delivered anything they promised, so everyone should be just claiming for, so what's the plan? What, and there, there, there is a need for more civil obedience. We were talking about the war before. Obviously, it's seen completely differently in France. I've been to Bletchley Park recently. But in, for us, the, the, this war is the base of the European Union. That's why we don't want to go there again, right? Mm. And it's so ironic that finally, you know, the Germans are so peaceful and the Brits are <laughs> putting the kind of hard, rock hard place kind of scenario mm. 
it's hard to understand. You're right. There's this kind of passive resentment, isn't there? Which I, I think is a way it explains in a way the Cornwall vote because people felt, well, I don't want these EU subsidies. I want to be, I want free. to, I, I want to be free. I don't want to de- be dependent. And I think that's a part of it somehow. But finally, let's take a moment to acknowledge the single emblematic moment that seems to encapsulate everything we've just been talking about. What did we make of Marc Francois MP theatrically tearing up a letter (laughs) from Tom Enders of Airbus saying he won't be bullied by Germans? Um, (laughs) Oliver, what does this say about where a large part of the Leave leadership has gone since the referendum? Um, There has been... um, Leavers have been radicalised... over the last, I would say, year and a half, it's become very pronounced. Let's go back a bit, if I, if I may. Um, Euroscepticism has its roots in the EEA option. The EEA option from the mid-1990s through the Bruges Group to Van Rinwick in 2003 to Richard North in 2013. The EEA option was Brexit. Um, it, intellectually, that was Brexit for a long time. Um, and what we've seen... Mm, I want to say sort of 2016 onwards, I don't know whether it started before or after the referendum, but what we've seen is a kind of radicalism where Brexitism itself has grown out of Euroscepticism and has taken on a life form of its own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't, I don't, it's really hard to point out why this has happened, but people I knew three years ago, like Darren Grimes, are not the same as they are now. Um, these people have changed. I think they've become harsher in their views, harsher in their discourse. Um, I also think they've become more inclined to believe things which... Uh, confirm their own biases and less likely to view situations objectively Uh, and these elements appear to me to have come together um, and created the kinds of comments that you see now from uh, Marc Francois about about the Germans I didn't I didn't actually see what happened but I I, I'll take your word for it you didn't miss anything (laughs) (laughs) I showed that clip to my mum my mum hasn't watched the news for two she hasn't watched the news since the referendum results she's just like no fuck that I'm not doing that I'm not dealing with that shit that couple whatever my family is sick of it too right so she's just like off and I was like mum look at this clip she just looked at those moments and she was like oh for God's sake. And then just stopped doing it. and was like, no, nah, she's not going to watch the news for another two years. That's pretty much guaranteed. I mean, he has time stamped himself as a big plonker in history forever. So uh, if that wasn't already known, the world knows now. So, no, I, I mean, I think most people never heard of him before. But anyway, right. very conscious that events like yesterday's can sometimes make the podcast seem a bit grim. So in an Alan Partridge-like attempt to keep it light, we're introducing a big question for the panel each week. This time, it's which former Prime Minister would we most like to have as a regular panellist on the show? It's the nerdiest. (laughs) Keep it light. We're going to play who's your favourite Prime Minister. (laughs) Yes, well, anyway. Never, Never coming back. (laughs) <laughs> Nina, who, who I, I want Cameron. Yeah. Let's relive the Ooh. shame with him every single week. It can be his own personal hell. <laughs> <laughs> he said he was not sorry. Exactly. He said he had no regrets. So. Well, he can't. You know, he, he's incapable now of making any meaningful contribution to public debate. Oliver, <laughs> um, that was also my answer. Um, but I'm going to play devil's advocate and change it up slightly. And I would say, um, I would quite like to talk to Edward Heath. Um, just get to get his views on the subject only because I think it would be nice to con- contrast mm. what accession and leaving what mm. were kind of like. Mm. That would be my answer. Yeah, he would be interesting. Yeah, you're right, because of it being such an Europhile in the Tory party. Mm. I mean, uh, more Europhile than Ken Clark even. I'd particularly like to know which, which of the two he thinks was more convoluted, more difficult. That would be interesting, in my opinion. Mm. Mm. Melissa, who would you like to see? Um, can I say Winston Churchill? Or- of course. 
right? You know, someone making decisions, someone who's in the rest of Europe, someone similar, or someone alive, I'd say, Tony Blair, and maybe he can face all these other responsibilities, so at least we win something in this crazy situation. Hmm. Yeah. It's a difficult one. I'll go with Disraeli. Mm. I think Disraeli would be top-notch on podcasts. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny as fuck. It's genuinely funny. I mean, the politics were terrible, but he's genuinely funny as fuck. I would actually go for Margaret Thatcher because <laughs> as a you know, as a pro-single market, anti-federalist uh, PM, I, I'm, I'd be interested to see what her take would be. Would she, like, you know, as you said, Oliver, so many other leavers have gone incredibly Brexity, or would she be pulling back and saying, this is madness? And I'd be yeah. fascinated to see. That's an interesting see. question. I don't, know, I don't know the answer to the question, there. but she would be an avid reader of mine, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> That's your answer to every question. <laughs> Our special guest this week is Reasonable Lieber. Yes, there is such a thing. Oliver Norgrove. <laughs> <laughs> Oliver, when did you start in the Leaf world? What was your gateway drug? <laughs> you say, oh. When did you start being reasonable? <laughs> <laughs> Who was your nic- nicotine, Never. your mentor? Was um, it um, the Bruges uh, group? Was it? No, it wasn't the Bruges group. I, I wasn't always this way, I have to say. Um, I, w- I, will an- I will answer your question. I don't like to talk about it, but I will answer the question. Thank you. Um, I, I was very kind of um, encapsulated by Nigel Farage in about 2013 and 14. Mm-hmm. The reason why is because I found him, and I actually think this is correct, I think he's charismatic, and I think he's... I think he has a way of um, <laughs> articulating articulating his his perception of ideas. Yeah. I would say that much. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's wrong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I now know subsequently that um, a lot of what he has said about trade and about the EU and about negotiations has been utter shit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I joined I joined UKIP in around 2014, um, and I left um, just before I became employed at Vote Leave, which was about April 2016. Um, and then Vote Leave lasted until obviously the referendum and then after that I I watched how negotiations just started to unravel and I began to read I decided that I didn't know enough I didn't know enough about the institutions I didn't know enough about trade and I started to really kind of teach myself and research and I read people who are really knowledgeable um, and that journey led me to a it sounds kind of vain but the more the more knowledgeable I became the softer my position grew uh, and I realised how crucial the single market was to us um, and then people like Ian kind of picked up on what I was sort of writing about and thankfully, and I appreciate the fact that you've promoted me and stuff in the past. And um, the, so the, the journey, my journey has gone really kind of the opposite way to most leavers. Uh, as I said to you before, le- the leave mentality was very, very soft in the 90s and the mm-hmm. early 2000s. It became harder and more radicalized. Now they talk about no deal and they say, oh, well, vote leave campaign for a no deal, which is utter shit, of course. So that's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've gone the other way. Um, I don't know why. That's just been my um, that's just been my journey, really. It's been quite low. It's quite, it's quite nice to have a tribe, you know what I mean? To have people behind you, especially when everything becomes mm. very tribalistic. It's been quite lonely in the sort of it is, reasonable it is, way. It is leave. lonely because I have a very kind of idiosyncratic position and I've lost quite a lot of friends, especially since I came out publicly for the single market about, I want to say, nearly two years ago now. Mm. Um, so it has been quite lonely. However, having said that, I think that um, I, I don't regret a thing because I've learned so much over the last few years and I think that I'm someone who has informed people of things over the, past, over the last couple of years mm. and I'm actually quite proud of the fact that I'm someone now that some people can rely on for information on some of the issues um, because it's, it's very difficult and I, there are lots of things I know nothing about uh, lots, of, lots of trade in lots of different services I don't know very much about um, VAT is very difficult for me so is equivalent but um, I, I'm proud of the fact that I can actually articulate and be 
a source of some kind of objectivity in a debate which by the way I think has become seriously poisoned by um, really intense partisanship and it's really nothing to be particularly proud of hmm. yeah. You worked in communications at Vote Leave I was the go-between between the comms team and um, the and breaking news and news so did you see a Finley Vale version of yourself in the Benedict Cumberbatch film on Channel 4? Uh, I was hoping there would be an extra somewhere in the office just like making tea. That would have been really cool. Yeah. But was it was it truthful to your to your experience? Um, I didn't watch it. All oh, right. I didn't okay. watch no. it. Sorry, I didn't watch it. I wasn't actually you I wasn't even remotely interested in watching it. No. I think the whole thing has become too dramatized. Gosh. But I guess I would have just been fascinated that any any sort of organisation I'd, I'd been in, any office or whatever, mm. if I thought that there was going to be some kind of, you know, vaguely professional sort of drama about it, yeah. I wouldn't have been able to help myself. Yeah, that know. doesn't surprise me, yet, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> doesn't surprise me. The fact that you want to chat with Disraeli about Brexit, that doesn't surprise me at all. No, I, I genuinely wasn't interested in watching it. I don't know why, I just, it just didn't. I also don't watch television in general, so. Fair I don't enough. eat carbs, I don't watch television, I'm very boring. <laughs> In 2017, you, you wrote that Brexit could become the Conservative Party's Iraq war. And mm. you were like said you were likely to vote Labour mm. next time. Are you still... I take it you're not still like to vote Labour. Uh, no, at the moment, no. I, I don't like the Labour Party because I see nothing to vote for because I don't see them as being particularly intellectually consistent or coherent. Um, that's good research, by the way. I wrote that a long time ago. And actually, that first statement about the Conservative Party's Iraq war, uh, I actually stand by that. And I think that a no-deal scenario would actually haunt the party for a long, long time. Yeah. So uh, is there a party that you do support? No, there is no party at the moment. And I'm f as far away from party allegiance as I ever have been in my political life. And I've only been interested in politics for about five years. Um, but I would say also that I don't think at the moment, constitutionally speaking, I don't think what we have at the moment is actually a party system. And I realise that sounds ridiculous. But actually, I think we've what we've done is we've parked an issue so big into the system that it's actually thrown everything out of whack yeah, and what we have really now true. is divisions mm -hmm. within divisions mm -hmm. and the general party lines aren't necessarily as applicable anymore hmm. well i think new evidence suggests that voters have far more allegiance or feel far more strongly about whether they're a brexiteer or remainer yeah. rather than it what you know if they're labor or conservative mm -hmm. What's your preferred settlement now? Then, are you do you favour a Norway-style deal? Uh, I like I like uh, after I like the EEA option. Um, I would like to leave with a deal. Um, I've become less fussy, particularly over the last few months, because I've seen I, I see the urgency and I see the encroaching possibility of a no-deal scenario. So I've become less fussy. I would like to leave with a deal. Um, I would love to, I would love for the UK to join EFTA because I think the EFTA is actually a kind of median position for if you look at public opinion of the single market. The general public overwhelmingly in favour of it. The general public overwhelmingly not do, are not in favour of political union. So actually, EFTA is a kind of median position, if that makes sense. Um, whether it's it's not actually possible to, to accede to EFTA because um, Article fifty six point three of the EFTA Convention states that you need to assume the EFTA's EFTA, EFTA's FTAs, and if we retain a comprehensive customs union with the EU, that's not possible. So that's another kind of wrench in there that's been thrown in, but. Any 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 deal right now is is really works for me. But of course, with Norway, we don't have a say. Effectively, we just have to accept EU regulation, and that's isn't something you'd have well, too much of a problem with. I would I would challenge that slightly. I think there's um, a lot of the rules are global, so we'd have them anyway. Um, the EU does have far more influence in that system. It's obviously undeniable. I think Norway is consulted at every stage of the legislative process. Norway also isn't part of the common commercial policy, so does have some kind of independence and flexibility when it comes to setting regulations. Uh, it does it does commandeer um, things like uh, committee global committees on uh, um, on 
policy areas and sectors that it have retained significant clout in. Countries which have strong sectors like fishing or whatever tend to do well in those areas when it comes to standard setting and global forums. So Norway, for instance, um, does lead like things like krill, con krill conventions and committees and things like this. So I know I realize it's a really tiny example. But what I'm saying is I think that sometimes the smaller states have more regulatory um, influence than perhaps they're given credit for. Mm -hmm. But that suits an economy like Norway's, yeah, precisely the, because of fishing. Yeah, the, so the EEA agreement actually isn't perfectly tailored towards the UK. I mean, financial services access is substantive, but it's not perfect. Um, so there is, and one of the one of the better arguments against the EEA option is that the UK joining it and joining EFTA would actually kind of compromise the nature of the fabric of the agreement and throw us all out of whack. And and I do concede that that so that is a strong possibility. Is this true though? Is that when we say Norway? We don't always literally mean Norway, you know. We're no. Very often talking about some sort of EA mm. type thing. You can add you can add a different silo into the EA agreement in mm -hmm. theory. You can mm -hmm. add a different silo to it. But again, it's about the the way the EA works is that it it works so well because it is based upon trust and track record, and the fact that the economies are like intertwined and so similar, and and you know. Changing that is potentially risky. I do I do acknowledge it because I am a thinking person and not blind to, to reality. Trust <laughs> and, and that's why I'm here. <laughs> Trust and track record. That's why the other EEA countries don't want the UK to join, right? But after now Brexit has so completely and rancorously divided the country, yes. as you were saying, is, is it going to be possible to get people back to debating in a vaguely civilised way? Like, If so, how? Um, the way forward is to be honest. The way forward is to be honest. And that's I, I'm a very tiny, tiny cog, and I, I have no power or influence, and really, but I've, I've tried. I've tried to be someone that can try try to be like that. Yeah. The way forward is to be objective and honest. That's the way forward because it's the only way forward. Because ultimately, if the truth doesn't matter, then nothing matters. Um, that's the only way we can cure British politics. And this, I, I have to say, I think this whole nonsense about bringing people together and bringing the country together is really kind of fantasy stuff. I don't see that happening anytime soon. Um, but I, I don't, I don't, I can't sit here and pretend that I have some kind of silver bullet cure for British politics at the moment because this is this is all really unprecedented. It's never really happened before, mm -hmm. uh, and there's no template for what for what we should do in the future. We're just kind of going through it and making it up as we go along, mm -hmm. and then and there are plenty of negative uh, connotations with that. But um, I, the we, it has to start with people being honest and people being realistic. No, you're right. I mean, the thing is, you can't bring people together. People have never been together. You know what I no, mean? People argue. And if it's not that, you're arguing about left and right. You're arguing about this and that. You can't. And we wouldn't want everyone to just be one thing. What you can mm -hmm. do is control the manner in which they speak yeah. to one another and the manner in which they argue. I would also point out that in the UK, we have adv adversarial systems that work. So we have an mm -hmm. adversarial parliament. We have an adversarial press, in theory. We have adversarial courts. Uh, and it might be all of those things have been a complete cock up over the last two years. Uh, <laughs> but yes. speaking, I agree. But I don't think what I said is wrong, though. I, they, they, they tend to work. And I think we should use them as a kind of example and, and work with those. And maybe maybe let's not let's stop kidding ourselves about people coming together because politics is by definition divisive. Hmm. Uh, so just let's just work with what we have and try to. I think the British Constitution functions best when all of the actors within it um, act in good faith. And that's really what I, what I have to say about that, yeah. to be honest. 
The end of the show is coming up and therefore the Brexit time capsule beckons. Oliver, we've never had a selection from a lever before. Uh, what would you put into our buried trove of things that we'll miss or things we'll need if Brexit goes ahead, as looks increasingly likely? Um, so one thing you should know about me is that I study, a, I study a, a master's in constitutional politics and one of my modules is EU politics and it's actually funded by the Erasmus scheme. I'm taught by, um, so a lot of, so uh, extracurricular stuff like going out for meals and stuff is obviously is funded by the EU. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, I feel a bit bad, but it's <laughs> true. Yeah, I, had, I had I had dinner I had dinner on the EU the other night. Uh, sorry, sorry. Mate, you, you didn't get uh, any carbs. So I'm sure <laughs> it would have been I did. Actually. Um, so um, Erasmus Erasmus is important to me because I think students do benefit. Erasmus is not actually exclusively EU, but leaving the EU could potentially mean we're not in it for a long for a long period of time. So I would I would like to preserve that, and I think I'm actually also taught by a Jean Monnet professor as well. So and he's su actually surprisingly objective about these things. But um, Erasmus is something that I would care to continue and preserve. I agree with that. I did Erasmus, mm -hmm. and it really changed my life. Where did you do it? Paris. How was it? Uh, well, it was a rubbish university, but just being there was important. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a good summary. <laughs> for our closing foreign language clip, you'd wait months and months for a bit of Polish and then two turn up at once. Here is listener Kasia Dzikan with a quote from the Polish philosopher and dissident Zygmunt Bauman. Los otwiera nam możliwości. It means fate opens up possibilities, but it's the character that makes a choice. Mm, Absolutely lovely. right, Kasia. Mm. Thank you. <laughs> Send us your sign-offs in any European language at info at .com. Keep them relatively short and we'll use the best ones. We're still holding out for Klingon and High Valerian, which we have decided are European languages. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of the show. Oliver Norgrove, thanks for joining us. Thank were you for we, having me. Uh, were we sufficiently gentle with you? You were lovely, all of you. I'm I'm slightly disappointed to announce that you were all lovely. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, if you ever want me back, I'd be happy to come back. Thank you very much. I, I do appreciate um, all of your help and um, the promotion and having me as well and being so nice to me. Why? Why? <laughs> Why? It's been lovely to have you. Man. <laughs> it's the spirit you. of union. <laughs> Thanks to our panellists, Nina Schick, Melissa Schumann and Ian Dunt and producer Alex Rees. This time next week, Ian Naomi Smith and Dorian Linsky will be stealing themselves for Romaniacs Live at the Leicester Square Theatre with special guest David Schneider. What will they have to talk about? <laughs> there might be one or two tickets left. Try leicestersquaretheatre.com to see. Until then, here's our theme tune, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional salute to some of our latest Patreon backers. Hello from me to Fiona Pollard, Andrew Patterson, Stephen Tolland, Nick Coombs, Rachel Marshall, and Dave Pitts. Hello, hello, Chris Rand, uh, Louise McCon, Sarah Axon, Sharwend Supermanian, that's an amazing name <laughs> if that really is your name, that is legendary, Eileen Duncan, and Willow Collios. Hello and thanks from me to Martin Gardner, Hervé Imbert, Martin Cookson, Sam Owen, Ted Sales and Victoria Whitbread. And finally, thanks from me to Melissa Gardner, Adrian Kemp, Derek Trainer, Claire McKee, Howard Shawley and Leslie Reed. Thanks to all. We'll see you next week for Plan Z. <laughs> <laughs> Romaniacs was presented by Ross Taylor with Nina Schick, Melissa Chamam and Ian Dunt. The producer is Andrew Harrison. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Romaniacs is a Podmasters production. Mm.